Good morning. As we continue to worship through the preaching of God's Word, if you would, open in your Bibles to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our places, in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Now during this time of year, we often focus particularly on the birth of Christ, the coming of our Lord. And that is certainly appropriate But in a sense, that's no different than any Sunday, because every time we open up the Word of God, it is a testimony to Christ. The entire Bible is about Christ. Alistair Begg says it like this, in the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In the Acts, he is preached. In the Epistles, he is explained. And in Revelation, he is predicted. The entire Bible is about our Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning from this passage in Micah, we're going to make three observations about our Lord. First, in verses 1 through 3, we'll see that Jesus is our ruler. And then in verse 4, we'll see that he is our shepherd. And finally, in verses 5 and 6, we'll see that he is our deliverer. Before we dive into this text, let's get kind of the landscape of what's happening in this particular prophetic book. So what's happening, particularly in this part of the text, Micah is divided into three prophetic pronouncements. And here we find ourselves in the second of those. And what Micah is addressing is uh, the oppression that is being brought upon the people, particularly by the leaders. What's happening is you have these judges and you have the prophets and the priests, they're doing their jobs, but the whole reason that they're doing it is in order to line their pockets. They're doing it in order to get paid. So the judges, they hand out their judgments based on what someone can pay them. So in Micah 3, starting in verse 9, he tells them exactly what it is the indictment is against them. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. 
Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. But notice this last part in verse 12. While they're doing all that, while they're lining their pockets, while they're abusing their positions, listen to what they say. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. So they think because of their status as the covenant people, they can simply live however they like. They can oppress the people. They can abuse the people and it'll be fine. There will be no judgment that will be brought against them because God is on our side. Nothing will happen to us. They, they don't take their sin seriously. But if you look earlier in chapter three, Micah gives them a picture of what exactly God thinks about what they're doing. In verse one, he says, and I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. He likens what they're doing in, in terms of cannibalism. And so once he follows through giving them the judgment that is to come because of their sin, he also promises them that there is a, a coming salvation all the way through chapter four. And then when we get to chapter five, we find kind of the final announcement of this salvation that is going to come to the people of Israel. He begins in verse one as we see Jesus as our ruler. He says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. And what he's doing here is he's calling Israel to arm themselves because a, a judgment is coming for them. And the, there's a hint of sarcasm in this verse, the way he plays off of two Hebrew words, where essentially what he's saying is that, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to scrounge up whatever military resources you have. It's not a lot, but you need to scrounge up whatever you have. And even when you do that, it's not going to be enough. Because he tells them that siege is laid against us. Now, this could refer to one of two events, and, and commentators are somewhat divided as to which particular siege this is. Some would say that it's the Assyrian invasion in 701 by Sennacherib. We find that in 2 Chronicles 32. And what happens in that event is that Hezekiah, because of his disobedience, has brought Israel under judgment. And Sennacherib comes to invade, but Hezekiah, he reminds the people, he tells them, God is going to deliver us. So I want you to, to stand firm. And Sennacherib, he begins to blaspheme God. He tells them that Hezekiah is lying to you. God's not going to protect you. Look at all these other people that I've defeated, all of these other nations that I've had victory over. Their gods didn't protect them, and your God is not going to protect you either. But when he attempts to invade Israel, he fails. And he's sent back to his homeland in shame where ultimately his sons kill him. So I don't think that that can be the referent here because I don't think it fits with the language of the judge being struck on the cheek. Nothing happens to Hezekiah in that scenario. Really, Sennacherib is the one that dies. And it doesn't sound like that's a giving up that you see in verse 3. So I think what this refers to is kind of the ultimate downfall of Judah that happens in 587 B.C. at the hands of Babylon. Now we find that in 2 Kings 
24. Now, this is shortly after Jehoiachin when Babylon invades Jerusalem first. Well, he just, in order to save himself, just gives up. And Zedekiah reigns in his place and does evil in the sight of the Lord as his father does. And so Babylon is, comes again in judgment on them. Well, what happens there is that Zedekiah is chased out of Judah and into um, another land. And when they find him, right, they stone all of his children in front of him. They slaughter all of his children in front of him. And then they put out his eyes. And they go back to Judah. And what they do is they tear down all the walls that used to protect the city. They take all the spoils and, and take them back to Babylon. And they burn the city to the ground. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that we get the context of this right, that we get the referent here right? I think Dale Davis explains to us why this is important. Verse 1 tells us the setting for God's work, complete humiliation. Here's what looks like the total demise of the Davidic dynasty. This is so often where God begins in our abysmal helplessness. So Israel is, or Judah is in a situation where it looks as though they have been completely abandoned by God because of what is, uh, what is coming um, in the future. But then in verse 2, we see a change both in speaker and who's being spoken to. In verse 1, it's Micah who's speaking to Judah. But in verse 2, it's Yahweh. And he speaks to Bethlehem Ephrathah. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. And so this transition from speaking to kind of the power in Judah, which would be Jerusalem, that's where the center of the political power is, to this no-name town. It even says that you're too little to be numbered among the clans of Judah. In Joshua 15, when the land is being divided, when they come into the land of Canaan, and Judah is naming off their clans, there's about 100 different clans that are named, and Bethlehem, doesn't even make the top 100. It's this insignificant, no-name little town. And if you're from a small town, you, you probably know what that's like. I, I myself am from a small town, and when people ask me where I'm from, I just kind of give them an area. I just tell them South Arkansas. Because if I were to tell you, oh, I'm, I'm from El Dorado, well, that doesn't mean anything to the majority of people. And so Bethlehem is a, a city kind of like that. Right, this no-name place, kind of, you go through it, not to it. But Yahweh says there, for this little town, from you, from you shall come forth for me, one, is to, one who is to be ruler in Israel. So the ruler will not arise in, in power and glory from Jerusalem. That he's going to be born in lowly estates, coming from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And this is how God normally operates, right? This is the testimony from Genesis to Revelation. And we see an example of that in a previous king that was named in Israel. Right? When David was named king, when God had determined to take his spirit from Saul right, and anoint a new king, right? He tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem Ephrathah. And when he gets there, he's met by Jesse and, and, and the elders of the place. And so they go to offer a sacrifice and Jesse's sons are brought forth. And the first one is Eliab. He's the oldest. Right? And when Samuel sees him, well, what does he say? Well, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. 
It, it's got to be this one. But what does God say in 2 Samuel 16? I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 16. He tells him, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so the next son comes, Abinadab comes, and he passes before Samuel, and the Lord says, I haven't chosen him either. So then the next one, Shammah, comes. Neither has the Lord chosen him. And seven sons pass before him. None of those sons are anointed king. And then Samuel says, well, is this everyone? Are, are, are all your sons here? And, and Jesse responds, well, I mean, there, there's the youngest, but, he, but he's out tending the sheep. Surely, surely it couldn't be. It couldn't be that one. But Samuel says, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And so they go and they bring him in. And the Lord says, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now, I've said that this is the normal way in which God operates. This is far from the only example in Scripture of God operating in, a, in an unexpected way. Really, the entire life and ministry of the Lord is characterized by this. Right in Isaiah, we're told that there was nothing about his physical appearance that would attract us to him. That he was born in a lowly place, a manger. That when he comes into town, he rides in not on a mighty horse, but on a donkey. He achieves victory through death and resurrection. And when he returns, John sees a vision of the Lord in Revelation chapter 5. And what does he hear? He hears the roaring of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then he turns, but what does he see? He sees the lamb that was slain. This is God's normal way of working out his purposes. And let that be an encouragement to us right, as we go about our day-to-day -day obedience, right, our moment-to-moment -moment obedience as family members, as church members, employees, citizens. That God works through those things. Not only is he honored in those things, but he uses those things to accomplish his purposes. So continue to give the gospel to your hard-hearted neighbor that just doesn't seem to be receptive at all. And continue to pray for that, for that wayward relative that you've been praying for perhaps for years. And it hasn't seemed to, to bear any fruit yet. God is honored in those things and he works through those things. And I think in this verse, we see the reason why God operates like this. He says, from you shall come forth for me. So yes, the, the ruler is going to come to deliver the people of Judah. But ultimately, the reason that the ruler comes is for God. And so the, the way in which he sends this ruler, that is intended in order to magnify and glorify God. Dale Davis says this, here then we see a frequent tendency in God's ways. For God is prone to choose the obscure, the insignificant, the lowly, the common, the unnoticed, as the very instruments through which he displays the brightest flashes of his glory. 
Now we see that this is an unexpected way in which the ruler is to come, but it's also not coming out of nowhere as if this plan was just conjured up in the moment as, as a response to what's happening here. Because it says that the ruler that his coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So what he's saying here is that the coming of this ruler, this is something that, that's not coming out of the blue, but this is something that was promised long ago. Because there was a particular promise that was made in this place to the previous king that came from Bethlehem. In 2 Samuel 7, we find the promise of the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 8, it says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will be to him as a father and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." So the ruler that is promised here in Micah 5 is the same one who is going to fulfill the promise that was made to David long ago. But the coming of this ruler doesn't just extend back to the time of David. It extends back even into eternity. Notice that he says that his coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And when you take those two words or those two phrases together, yes, it can refer to historical times, in the, uh, in the history of Israel. But when used of God, it refers to his acts from eternity. And so what Micah is saying is that not only is this ruler going to be the fulfillment of the promise to David, but he's going to be one who himself is eternal. And this keeps Micah in line with his contemporary prophet, Isaiah, who says that the child to be born, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So we have this judgment that's promised in verse 1 and the salvation promised in verse 2. So how is that, that going to play out? How do those two things work together? Well, he says in verse 3, what will happen first is he shall give them up. And you feel the weight of those words, the covenant people of God who are the, the ones that have all of the promises, who have God with them. And then for all of these years, and he has brought them through so much. You look through the history of Israel in the Old Testament. And then he says, he shall give them up. When this comes to pass in 2 Kings 24, it describes it this way. For because of the anger of the Lord, 
it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. It will seem as though Judah has been completely given up by God. But then Micah says, until. There will be a terminal point to this giving up. And it won't be because of anything in Judah and Jerusalem but it will be because of the promise that God has made. When God keeps promises, he keeps those promises. Micah says the same in Micah chapter 7. As he ends his prophecy, he says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us and will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And we know that that God's faithfulness stands, that this promise does come to pass. Because Micah 5, 2, we find its fulfillment in Matthew chapter 2. When Jesus is born in Bethlehem in the days of the king, and wise men come and they say, where is he that has been born king of the Jews? And when the king heard it, he was was troubled. And all of the land with him? And so he he calls in all of the theologians, right, to tell him, where is this one that has been born king of the Jews? And they tell him in Bethlehem because of what the prophet Micah said. I want you to notice for just a moment in that text is that it says that Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why? What is he troubled about? Because Herod as king knows that the king has come, the one who was promised from long ago, the one who's coming forth is from ancient days, that the king has come. And so what happens when the king comes? Well, Micah tells us what the result is in verse 3. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And so here this has to do with the the timing and what exactly is is going to happen when the king comes. So the the brothers here, it refers to the the ones of Judah and Jerusalem. And it's it's talking about how the king is going to unite the people. See, at this time, the, the northern and southern kingdoms are divided. But when the king comes, he is going to unite his people under his rule and reign. And that would be easy enough to grasp if he didn't say then. So when when does this happen? When does this uniting of the people happen? And I think there are are two approaches here to to the timing of these things. On the one hand, you have the, the dispensational approach which would uh, think about this text that the uniting of the people will not happen between the first and second coming of Christ during the church age. Rather, it will happen in the future. Right after the, the church is removed from the world, that Christ will return and then he will unite the northern and southern kingdoms, the people of Israel, under his rule and reign from a physical Jerusalem. But then on the other hand, you have the covenantal approach which would see the fulfillment of this happening between the first and second comings of Christ throughout the ages between those those two comings. And I think the covenantal approach here is to be preferred 
Because I think what we find in the New Testament is that the elect Jews and elect Gentiles are not saved in different times and in different ways. Rather, throughout the ages, between the first and second comings of Christ, is that all of the elect from both the Jews and the Gentiles are brought to faith in Christ at the same time as he builds his church. Herman Bobbink um, explains it in this way. He says, For he expressly states that a hardening has come upon a, a part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And that in that way, not after that, all Israel will be saved in Romans eleven twenty five and 26. Romans eleven twenty six does not mention a new fact that takes place after the coming of the full number of the Gentiles, but the coming in of the full number of Gentiles and salvation of all Israel run parallel. So what we see as Christ builds his church is that this event that's described at the end of verse 3 is happening right now. It's happening as we speak, as Christ saves his people. So what is it that Christ does for his people as he gathers them in and brings them to himself? We find that in verse 4 as we look at our second point. Jesus is our shepherd. It says that he shall stand and shepherd his flock. Notice that Christ is not simply sitting down, right? But he is one who is standing up. He is active on behalf of his people. It says that he shepherds his flock. And this is a prominent theme in Scripture as it relates to Christ. In very well-known passages such as Psalm 23 and John 10. And just a summary of what is said about Christ in these passages is that he knows us by name. That he leads us. He provides for us. He protects us. And he died for us. He lays down his life for his sheep. So let me ask you, do you know him in this way? Do you know Christ as your good shepherd? Are these things that are, that are said about him, are these things a reality in your life? This morning, if you know that, that that's not true of you, that you don't know the shepherding care of Christ, Listen to what he says in John 6, 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This morning, come to the good shepherd and experience salvation in him. And as he shepherds his people, it tells us exactly how that is done. In the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord. So the way that Christ is going to shepherd his people is going to be in such a way that magnifies the, the power and the strength in the name of God. And we see an example of that in the life of David at the very kind of beginning of him as uh, the shepherd king of the people. We know that the Philistines were at war um, with the people of Israel in 2 Samuel 17. And David, knowing that, that his brothers were in the army at the time, he goes down to, from his, sent from his father to bring them some food. And when he gets there, what does he see? Well, he sees Goliath blaspheming God and mocking the people of Israel and their cowardice as they would not fight him. And so David determines that he is going to stand against this man Goliath himself. 
And I think often in, in popular culture, this story is, is described as, you know, David being the underdog, right? It's this, oh, there's no way that, that this child could defeat this giant. And, and that may be true if you look at it just from a purely worldly perspective. But listen to what David says in 2 Samuel 45 and 46 as he stands before this giant. He says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David doesn't consider himself some sort of underdog. He is shepherding the people in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord, so that all the world may know that there is a God in Israel and his power among the nations. And we see the result here in Micah of, of the shepherding care of Christ is that we shall dwell secure. And he tells us the reason that, that we are secure in him, that we are safe from all that surrounds us. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. You see, Christ will not simply shepherd his people and rule over his people but his reign will extend to the ends of the earth, that even his enemies will bow the knee to him. Paul says in, in Philippians 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Psalm 72, we, we see this greatness to the ends of the earth described. It says this, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. And may the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Christ is king to the ends of the earth. And as king, as one whose people are safe with him, he delivers us from all of the enemies that surround us. And that's what we find in verses five and six, that Jesus is our deliverer. It says that because he is great to the ends of the earth, he shall be their peace. Now, as we read that, we don't need to lose sight of what's happening in Judah at the time that Micah's writing. Because these enemies that have invaded them, Babylon that has completely destroyed them, that's not their primary problem. You could almost see Babylon as more of a symptom of the problem because why are they there in the first place? Because Judah has been given up. Judah has been given up by God for a time. They have come under judgment because of their disobedience to his command. So what is primarily needed by the people is not salvation from Babylon, but salvation from the judgment of God. 
And we see how Paul describes the salvation from judgment when he talks about how Christ saves his people and makes them one new man in Ephesians 2. It says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Listen to this part. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ is our peace by by reconciling us to God through the cross. That is how he is our peace. But you notice that it says he is our peace. And then in the rest of verse 5 and verse 6, it describes what that peace is in terms of war. So, so how are we to understand that? Well, Dale Davis explains it, explains it in this way. Peace here is almost equivalent to victory. Peace does not mean one never fights. Peace is what comes after you win the fight. It is not some anemic serenity. If there is serenity, it's because the opposition has been liquidated. And we saw that in Ephesians 2. Where it says, so making peace and reconciling us to God, how? Through the cross, by killing the hostility. And so as a result of Christ killing the hostility, right, and delivering us from our enemies, what will be the result? How will we experience this victory, this deliverance, this peace? How will we experience that? Well, Micah goes on to say, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. He shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. So although, yes, we do have victory and we do have peace in Christ, we still live between his first and second coming. And so for the people of God, we are constantly at war. We are surrounded by enemies on all sides. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, what stands behind those enemies that we encounter in our lives? He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic power over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so as our enemies surround us in this life. We encounter right, these rulers and authorities and cosmic powers. What are the ones that, are you, that you're experiencing in your life right now? What are the enemies that you're facing right now? The Puritans were right when they say that the, the Christian's three enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Perhaps you're, you're facing the distractions of the world. Right, that are so common during this time of year with the, the, the stress of, of, of the holidays and the materialism that tends to be associated with that. Maybe you're being distracted by the world. Perhaps you're battling the flesh. You're battling indwelling sin. That Paul says the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, 
and things like these. Or perhaps you're tempted to believe the lies of Satan, that perhaps these sins that Paul describes are maybe not that big of a deal. That you're tempted to believe the the age-old lie that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden, that you shall not surely die. What are you facing this morning? But as you think about that, I don't want you to think as though you're going to have to just simply limp through life as these enemies surround you and overtake you just until you can get to glory, that you just have to limp through life. Because what Micah says here is that when we're surrounded by these enemies, when we encounter them, what's going to happen? They shall shepherd the, I'm sorry, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. He says that the people of God are going to have victory against these enemies. And that's why Paul continues in Ephesians 6 and tells us to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. It's not a hopeless exercise as we encounter our enemies in the Christian life. It is something that we are able to overcome. Peter says that God has given us, that his divine power has granted everything that we need for life and godliness. And I think in, in this local expression of the body of Christ, I think we find some of those things that God has given us. Right? When he says here that we'll raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, that's a figure of speech that refers to the fullness of resources. And I think here we have godly elders who lead us. We have mature believers who can disciple us younger believers. We have those that are equipped in biblical counseling that are able to help us and equip us right, to wield the sword of the Spirit and to defeat the sin in our lives, to overcome those life-dominating sins. Right? You see the contrast between verse 5 and verse 1 where you have these, these meager military resources But then once we get to verse 5, there's plentiful resources. That we have been given everything that we need in our spiritual battles in this life. But notice how Micah ends. You know, lest we believe that as we've been equipped with these resources to live the Christian life, that what we're doing is of our own strength and of our own ability As though we make these things effective, Micah reminds them at the end, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. So the effectiveness of these plentiful resources that God has given us in in living the Christian life and having victory over the sin in our life, the effectiveness of that comes from Christ himself. He is our ruler. He is our shepherd. And he is our deliverer. So may we echo the words of Charles Wesley in his classic hymn, Glory to the Newborn King. Let's pray. Father, you have shown us your glory through this passage. God, where long ago you determined to save a people for yourself, God, and you have sovereignly worked out your plan throughout history. God, and praise 
be to your name, that we have seen the fulfillment of your promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for all that he is for us. God is our ruler, the one to whom we bow the knee and worship as our king. Our shepherd, the one who cares for us, protects us, provides for us. God, and our deliverer, the one who gives us victory over the enemies in this life. God, and the one who will bring us to glory as one day we will see you face to face. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.